I'm going to make a confession, another confession. Uh, I really struggled with, and I say this every week, but I really struggled with the sermon preparation. For some reason, I, I had a lot of thoughts, but it was like a battle to try and articulate those thoughts clearly on paper. Um, so today might sound like the ramblings of a madman, so I do need your prayers. Um, but we are in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. So we're continuing our series in Mark. So Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through to the end of the chapter, verse 37. The word of God reads, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his thing fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're continuing um, our series in the Gospel of Mark. And as we see out chapter 7, Lord, I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak clearly, to articulate, articulate rather my thoughts with clarity. Uh, Lord, we pray that you, through our unpackaging uh, of this passage, that we would gain more than just an encounter, uh, but a, a transformational experience of worship. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen me, that you would give us hearing ears, seeing eyes, and humble hearts that are ready to be molded by the power of your Spirit. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, no surprise, we're continuing our series in Mark's Gospel. And just to give another recap, uh, last week we saw Jesus encounter a Syrophoenician woman. Uh, she, was a, she was not a Jew, she was a Gentile, and she was a Gentile of Canaanite ancestry. Her ancestral lines, uh, you know, drew back to a people group that were traditionally enemies of Israel. Um, and Jesus' encounter with her took place in a Gentile region. So it was a foreign place considered unclean uh, by the Jews. And it was a region called Tyre and Sidon. And I gave a bit of context about what took place in this region. It was a place that was notorious for its idol worship, particularly the goddess Ashtoreth, who I mentioned was the goddess of fertility. And, you know, we, we always wonder... You know, how could Jews be so racist towards non-Jews? How could Jewish Christians of all people be racist towards the Gentiles? And I gave a bit of context as to why. Uh, because the worship of the goddess Ashtoreth, and even, you know, the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, um, it wasn't this cutesy kind of love. It was, it was a very sensual kind of love. Um, they worshipped their goddess through sex. So people would go to the temple, have sex with a bunch of prostitutes, and that was their form of worship. And so if you look at it from that context, you can kind of understand why the Jews, when they saw the Gentiles, they were kind of like, ew, yuck, 
and they didn't want to you know, associate with them because they, they considered them to be unclean. But this Syrophoenician woman, despite her, you know, her heritage as traditionally being an enemy of God's people, despite the fact that she was a Gentile, where it was frowned upon for a Gentile to you know, associate with Jews, despite the fact that it was a, she was a woman. You know, I mentioned back then that the cultural context was that women don't approach rabbis. Um, despite that, she comes looking to Je- for, for Jesus because her daughter was oppressed by a demon and we saw that she begged. And that verb beg was in the imperfect tense, meaning that she didn't just beg once. She got louder and louder. She begged continuously without ceasing. Uh, and Jesus, out of compassion, fulfilled her request. And this woman's daughter, because of her persistence, was healed of the oppression of the demon that once possessed her. Now, in today's passage, Jesus moves out of Tyre and Sidon, and he takes this long trip around the Sea of Galilee. And he gets to the eastern region of the Sea of Galilee, and that region was known as the Decapolis. Um, And if you have a good memory, not like me, I've got a terrible memory, but if you've got a good memory, uh, you'll recall that two chapters ago, we encountered this region of Decapolis. Um, because, you know, if you remember Jesus, at some point, he crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And he landed in the middle of the night across the sea in the middle of a cemetery. Pitch black of night, lands in a cemetery and out of the darkness, a crazy, naked, demon-possessed man, wearing nothing but naked, comes screaming at the top of his lungs, full steam towards them. And not only was this man possessed, I can't stress how terrifying it must have been to have a naked man run towards you. And not only was this guy naked, and to make it even more terrifying, not only was this guy naked, the passage said that he had superhuman strength. You know, the local community, they knew he was crazy. They thought, you know, he was demon-possessed. And one of the ways they tried to stop him was that they bound him in iron shackles. And the way Mark describes his strength, he says that he tore the shackles apart, like how you tear a piece of paper. This was how strong he was. And so not only is it terrifying to have a naked guy running towards you, but the thought of being manhandled and ragdolled by a crazy naked man would have made it all the more terrifying. But to cut a long story short, this crazy naked demoniac with superhuman strength, Jesus casts out, and he wasn't just one demon, but an entire legion of demons. Jesus casts them out. And the moment his mind is restored, if you recall what he did, he begged Jesus. He said, let me come with you. I don't know where you're going, but I want to be in your presence always. Let me, let me just follow you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. But Jesus denies that request. Instead, he gives the man a very important commission. He tells the man, I want you to go home. Go to wherever you came from, your neighborhood. And I want you to tell everyone Everything that God has done for you, everything that I've done for you, I want you to tell people. And this man, once a superhuman, like superhuman strength, naked, demoniac, crazy guy, he became the first ever missionary in the New Testament. And the passage showed us that he went home, and home for him was this region that we encounter today, this region called Decapolis. 
And Decapolis wasn't just one city. Um, if you know your prefixes, dec is you know, the prefix for 10. So we get decade, decagon, decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. Um, Decapolis was a region that consisted of 10 cities. It was a pretty big region. And one thing I love about today's passage, and we'll find out in a moment, is that it becomes apparent that what happened in chapter 5 when Jesus commissioned this formerly crazy, super strong naked guy, who I'm assuming put clothes on after once his mind was restored, didn't go on missions naked, um, he, it becomes apparent in today's passage that he obeyed that commission. You know, Jesus told him, I want you to go back home to this region of Decapolis, 10, 10 cities, and I want you to go and tell everyone what I've done for you. And it's apparent in today's passage that he obeyed that call. Because in verse 32, it says, They, the people of Decapolis, brought to him Jesus, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they, the people of Decapolis, begged him to lay his hand on him. If you recall chapter 5, and you compare the attitude of the people of Decapolis today with what we saw in chapter 5, you'll find that there's been a shift in their attitude. Because in chapter 5, if you remember, after Jesus cast out the legion of demons from this superhuman, you know, like strong demoniac, he cast the legion of demons into a herd of pigs, and the pigs all commit suicide. And then when the people of Decapolis come out, what happens? They look at the dead pigs. Pigs. They look at this man, this once crazy man who's in his right mind now. And what do they say to Jesus? They tell him, get out of here. Put it bluntly. They tell him, piss off. We don't want you here. We don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. You don't even belong here. You're a Jewish rabbi. Get out. We don't want you here. And Jesus doesn't put up an argument. He gets on the boat. After having got off the boat like only a few minutes ago, he gets back on the boat and he leaves. These same people that told Jesus to leave now are begging him for his help. They're seeking an audience with him. They're bringing to him one of their own, a deaf, mute man. A man who had a speech impediment. Why would they bring this man to Jesus? The only explanation is that the demoniac from chapter 5 fulfilled his commission as a missionary to this region, that he went from town to town, all 10 cities, and shared his personal testimony about what Christ did for him, the power that Christ possesses to restore a person's body and restore their mind. And so this whole region of Decapolis, 10 cities, just like the Syrophoenician woman from last week's passage, it says that they came to him and they interceded. They begged Jesus. They begged him to perform healing for this man that they grew up with who's never been able to hear and he's never been able to speak. And Jesus out of compassion. And it has to be out of compassion. Because remember, these are the same guys that told him to piss off. If someone tells me to piss off, I probably wouldn't be as gracious. But out of compassion, Jesus hears their begging. And he fulfills their request. 
But there's something very peculiar about the way he heals this man in today's passage. It's quite peculiar, and if I'm to be honest, it's a little bit gross. Um, Verse 33 says, And taking him, the the deaf, mute man, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. So Jesus is introduced to this deaf, mute man. People from 10 cities. There's a lot of people. Like we, Jesus has experienced mega crowds, especially in Capernaum. Remember in Capernaum, he had like a giant fan club. Like the whole town showed up to see him. Now it's a whole town times 10. And so Jesus takes this deaf, mute man and takes him away into a private area where no one can see, no one can hear, and no one can witness what's taking place. Why? Who knows? Um, The passage doesn't tell us. But I'll give my thoughts, my opinion, um, in a moment. But Jesus takes this guy into private. And he sticks, takes his fingers. I'm assuming they're index fingers because you can't really stick more than one finger into your ear. You just assume it's going to be the index index fingers, don't you? It's not going to be like the pinky or the thumb. That'd be weird. But the index fingers. And he sticks it into the man's ear. And then it said that he spat, presumably on his hand, and then he touches his tongue. This is what I mean when I said it's gross. Imagine you go to a doctor, like, oh, I've got like a mouth ulcer. Never, don't worry. You'd be like, yeah, what, what are you doing? Like the closer that hand would get, you'd think he'd be like leaning away. And it would have been more terrifying for this guy because this guy can't hear. There's no explanation that he's probably wondering what on earth is going on. But a bit of context. Back then, uh, saliva, it's a bit gross, but saliva was considered to have medicinal and therapeutic benefits. We've come a long way in modern medicine. But Jesus sticks his fingers into the guy's ear, then he spits on his hand, and he touches his tongue. And verse 34 says that looking up to heaven, he sighed or he groaned in anguish. And he said to him, Ephatha, it's a very unusual word. It's not Ephatha, I actually looked up the original Aramaic, it's Ephatha. And it literally means be opened. Like kind of like if you have a clogged pipe, be unclogged or be opened. And this idea when Jesus looks up to heaven, this idea of looking up to heaven, it's an act of prayer. And so Jesus, as he sticks his fingers into the guy's ear, spits on his hand and touches the guy's tongue, he prays for him. And verse 34 said that he sighed or he groaned in anguish. So it wasn't just a prayer. It wasn't just a healing. But a sigh of groan and anguish suggests that Jesus shared in this man's pain and his suffering. I've mentioned a few times in our series in Mark that our God, unlike other gods, unlike the Greco-Roman gods that the Gentiles had grown up with, our God is not a faraway God. He's not a God that just makes creation and then just watches from afar. He doesn't just watch suffering from afar and choose not to participate, but the incarnation of Christ. One of the key important elements that we should understand about the incarnation, that God himself would come into creation, take on human flesh, 
is that it's a demonstration from our God that he chooses out of his own volition not to watch us from afar. Not to see our pain and suffering and just watch it from afar and be like, yeah, he'll be fine. It's not a long-distance relationship. But the incarnation, Christ's coming into creation is God's demonstration that because he loves us, he chooses not to watch suffering from afar, but to feel every ounce of our pain, to participate and share in our suffering. Now, I think today, Jesus is very intentional about the peculiar way he chooses to heal this man. Because um, if you've seen the earlier healings in Mark's gospel, um, you'll know that Jesus had the power to just verbally heal him. Didn't have to spit in his hand and touch his tongue. He could have just said, be healed. Uh, we've seen when he healed the centurion's daughter. Or even last week, when he exercises the demon from the Syrophoenician's daughter, a woman's daughter. He doesn't even have to be present. He can heal from afar. But he uses his fingers, sticks his fingers into the man's ear, touches the man at the very core of where his suffering is emanating from, touches his tongue. And not just that, but we see that the compassion of Christ wasn't just to simply heal this man, but he takes him away privately so that this man can have Jesus' undivided attention. So he can stand face to face and watch the second person of the Trinity, the saviour of the world, Look at him straight in the eyes. Pray for him. Groan in prayer. And heal him. And I'll, whenever I see a passage like this, I like to try and put myself in their shoes. Because what a moving sight it would have been. To watch the heart of God himself aching for you watching God himself intercede for you. And by the authority of his word, Jesus having prayed for him, shared in his pain, touched him at the very source of his suffering. He says this word, Ephatha. Sounds like a little baby talking, Ephatha. But Ephatha, which in Aramaic I mentioned means be opened. And the result was that the healing was instant. You know, I mentioned before that whenever Jesus heals, it's instant. It's not gradual. It's instant. Verse 35, and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now, I want to make it here clear that in this healing, there's not two elements to this healing, but there's actually three. Because not only has his hearing been restored, obviously, because he was deaf, you can now hear. Not only has his tongue been released so that he's able to talk, but there's a third aspect to this healing. And it's that this man could not only talk, but he could talk plainly or clearly. And for someone who's been deaf for a long period of time, 
you will know that generally they have trouble enunciating their words. Because part of the reason when we grow up, we're able to pronounce words clearly is because if we have good hearing, we can feel the vibration of our words. When we hear other people talk as kids, we learn to emulate that by emulating the vibrations and hearing the sound of our own voices. But when you're deaf growing up, you don't have that opportunity. So you don't really get to develop a proper ability to talk plainly. So that's the third aspect of this healing. And when I studied this passage, uh, it actually made me think back uh, to one of the greatest hymn writers, I think the greatest hymn writer um, in Christian history, or at least female hymn writer. And her name is Fanny Crosby. Uh, and she wrote so many classic hymns, like Blessed Assurance. I'm not going to sing it. I'm a terrible singer. Cla you, yeah, I'll probably cause more confusion if I sing it. But Blessed Assurance, um, All the Way My Saviour Leads Me. And, you know, it's said that in her lifetime, including the hymns that never got published, that she wrote in excess of 8,000 hymns or songs of worship to God. 8,000 songs. That in itself is a remarkable feat. But what makes it so much more remarkable is that Fanny Crosby lived her entire life as a blind woman. She never grew up knowing what it was like to be able to see, which makes the fact that she wrote 8,000 songs even more remarkable. And these songs aren't just like your wishy-washy songs. These are songs that have stirred the hearts of Christians for generations. Like she wrote some of the most amazing hymns. But what I love about Fanny Crosby in particular, like one of the stories about her that I really, really love is towards the end of her life, uh, there was a pastor that came to visit her. And this pastor, you know, knowing this affliction of blindness that she grew up with and knowing all the hymns that they probably sang in their church because she wrote them, um, he said to her, and I quote, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. It must have been such a disadvantage have grown up blind. Some people might say that's a bit insensitive to say to a blind person. But Fanny Crosby smiled and she replied, it's not a disadvantage, Pastor. It's not a disadvantage at all to be blind. In fact, I see it as a great advantage and a great honour. And the pastor kind of furrowed his brows and was like, what? How? How is this an advantage? And she said to him, Pastor, don't you realize that the day I gain my sight, the first face I will ever see, the first face that will ever greet me will be his face. Isn't that an interesting perspective? And when I was preparing this sermon and studying this passage, it made me think of Fanny Crosby because of the details that Mark records in this miracle. Because this man had the entire region of Decapolis bring him to Jesus. And the record of this miracle shows that Jesus didn't just heal him in passing. He took him away privately for a one-on-one -on -one session. And the circumstances that led to this man's healing 
meant that the first voice he would ever get to hear would be the divine voice of God himself, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the first voice he would ever hear. And I don't think it's a voice he would have ever forgotten. And so having performed this healing, verses 36 and 37, it says, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But, kind of like where everywhere he went, the more he charged them to tell no one, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. Even, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, this might seem a bit strange. Uh, it almost might seem like a contradiction on Jesus' behalf because in chapter 5, he tells the demoniac to do what? He goes, I want you to tell everyone everything that I've done for you. But now he's like, don't tell anyone anything that I've done for you. What's changed? Um, I think, and again, Mark doesn't tell us why, but I think back then um, it was to get the word out that the Messiah was now here. But now that word had come, the whole region knew about who Jesus was. Um, I think Jesus didn't want the Roman authorities finding out and impeding what would be his three-year ministry that would end at the cross. And so he tells everyone, don't tell anyone what you've seen or witnessed here. And that's how today's passage ends. And this is where I get to the part of my sermon that I'm praying I'll be able to articulate my thoughts clearly. Um, I prayed on Friday at the prayer meeting for this because I just really struggled to get my thoughts onto paper. Um, but I'm just going to share one observation, one application, one whatever you want to call it. And that is that a true encounter with Christ leads to true worship of Christ. A true encounter of Christ leads to true worship of Christ. Now, I mentioned, uh, I keep saying I mentioned, but I did mention a few times that one of the important things we need to do when we read through any gospel account is to harmonize this, this idea of harmonization. Because, you know, there are four eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes as you read through these accounts, you'll read something in Mark and be like, wait, hang on a sec. I read the same thing in Matthew or something similar or something that seems like an identical event in another gospel. And one of the things we can do is, it probably was an identical event, is to look at the details that's captured in the different eyewitness accounts and collage it together to form the bigger picture of what happens. And it's no different from today's passage. The problem, though, is that today's event of this deaf, mute man, uh, it's exclusive to Mark's gospel. This zeroing in on this man uh, doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. However, if we follow Mark's gospel, uh, sorry, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 15, you'll find that there's a chronology of events that precede this that's very similar to Mark's Gospel. For example, in Mark 7 and in Matthew 15, we have this synonymous event where this elite debating team that we saw from Jerusalem comes looking for Jesus to discredit him. And in both Mark 7 and Matthew 15, this is followed by the account of Jesus meeting this Syrophoenician Canaanite woman. And then if you move on to the next event, which is today's passage, you'll find that Mark zeroes in on this deaf, mute man, but Matthew's gospel 
continues describing healings, not by zeroing in, but from a high-level perspective, that Jesus kind of healed a lot of people, but it doesn't mention this man exclusively. Why am I pointing this out? Because there's a significant detail as Matthew skims and gives us a high-level observation of the healings about how the Gentiles react to the healings. Matthew 15, 30 to 31. It says that, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, for they witnessed the healing. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And here's the reaction. It says, And they glorified the God of Israel. They saw the power of Jesus, and despite all the other gods and goddesses in their lives, in their culture, they chose to worship exclusively the God, not just any God, but the God of Israel. Ironically, this is the far cry from the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders and their reaction, because when the Jewish leaders saw the power of Jesus and they witnessed the first hand, what was their reaction? Their reaction was to try and put him to death. Their reaction was to say, you know what? He's in cahoots with Satan. This is the power of the devil. But for the Gentiles, they understood that what they had found in Christ, they'd found something that none of the idols that they'd grown up worshipping could offer them. And so they come to Christ and they engage in an encounter with Christ. But then having encountered and witnessed his power, what's their response? To glorify the God of Israel. Their encounter led to worship. And I've decided to make that the crux of today's sermon message. Because when I look at Christendom today, the modern day church, when I look at young Christians, young believers' lives, Christians today, and even when I look at my own life, I can't help but feel that there's so many times where we see a divorce between encounter and worship. And I can't help but feel that we've convinced ourselves that these two things are the same thing. That if we have an encounter with God, that that encounter is worship of God. And if we fall into this misunderstanding that these two things are identical, what we'll find is that spiritual deadness will start to define more and more of what our walk with Jesus looks like. Because we can encounter God in many ways. We can encounter him through the scriptures when we open and read our Bibles. We can encounter him when we go to church on Sundays. We can encounter him at a church retreat. We've got HMX and the primary school retreat coming up. We can encounter him at a retreat. But for the Jewish leaders, we saw in their lives, they encountered Christ multiple times. But encounter for them is where it began, and encounter is where it ended for them. It never actually led to a worship of Christ. And the reason I point this out is because so often I think we go through the same cycle. 
We can criticize the Jewish leaders for their lack of response to worship. But when we engage in countless encounters with Christ, we have to ask the question, is this worship? Is this genuine, true heart worship? And I think if we approach that question with humility, I think we'll say many times it isn't. And we make that dangerous assumption that encounter and worship are the same thing. It's not the same thing. It does go hand in hand, but it's not the same thing. And the problem with making the assumption that it's the same thing is that when our worship starts to feel stale, when our heart isn't in our worship, if we think encounter and worship are the same thing, then what will happen is we, when our heart becomes stale, we'll try to remedy it by trying to create more encounters, more Bible reading, more sermons. Nothing wrong with those things. They're great things. But if we keep going down this route where we think the solution is just to create more encounters, we'll soon find that it will create a bigger divorce, a bigger chasm between our encounter of God and our worship of him. And so the question arises, how can I avoid this chasm from appearing? Well, I mentioned at the prayer meeting on Friday um, that I think one of the helpful things to do is to just stop and reflect just stop everything and just reflect inwards. Because everything in our life is just very go, 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 go. I've been in youth ministry for 10, 11 years. And for them, it's like I look at their lives and I, I, I'm astonished at how fast-paced their life is. It's, I used to call them the instant generation. Instant service, instant access, instant entertainment. It's almost like the mentality of a drug addict where everything has to have an instant fix. And over the course of time, I think we've lost our ability because our life is so fast. We've lost the ability to just stop and reflect, to look inwards. And that's important because if we stop and we look inwards, that's when we start to see our inadequacies. When we stop and look inwards, that's when we start to see our need. We start to see a desperation, a desperate need to be sanctified and to be transformed. And I think part of the reason that the world is constantly on this go, go, go mentality is because this generation is afraid to stop and look inwards because they're afraid of what they're going to see when they do that. Because the reality is when you do stop and you do look inwards, it hurts. Because more often than not, it's very ugly what you see inside. You might see character flaws, 
you might see an emptiness where despite all the quick fixes that you try to fill that emptiness, nothing seems to suffice. It's not pleasant to look inwards. And sometimes when we look inwards, it feels like it's going to take an impossible amount of work to be healed. But ironically, it's only when we get to this place that our encounter starts to become worship. Because through those who receive the gospel, as we look inwards and we see the real deep ugliness of our souls, then our natural reaction will no longer be to go, go, go and just simply gloss over it. But to look to Christ with unblocked ears, to listen to him and look to him for healing. Because going back to today's passage, remember the method of healing was quite peculiar, wasn't it? A deaf man who can't hear. Why on earth would you stick your fingers into the ears of a deaf man who can't hear? If anything, you'd think that that would make it harder to hear, wouldn't it? I can't hear. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, great. I can hear hear even better now. Why would he do that? Well, as Christ sticks his ears, fingers, not his ears, fingers into his ears, um, he doesn't leave them there, obviously. But he takes it out and he says that word, Ephatha, I'm never going to get used to Ephatha, not Ephatha, but Ephatha. I didn't study Aramaic at Bible college. I studied Greek and Hebrew. And he says, be opened. Almost to suggest that the problem with the young man's ear wasn't that, you know, he was deaf, but it was just, it's almost to imply, oh, it was just blocked, and now I've unblocked it. But I think that idea of the ears being blocked, sticking fingers in our ears, often describes how we go about living for Christ. And it often describes the way we limit our encounter with Christ. Because like I said, we, we, we're a generation that struggles to stop, struggles to look inward, struggles to find any desire to hear his voice. That's the reality. And I'm not saying to condemn you. I'm saying this is me as well so often. And so often our encounter with Christ almost becomes like we stick our fingers in our ear. We just kind of walk into his presence and then just walk away. Where we want an affiliation with Jesus. Long as it doesn't cost us anything. I'm willing to have this encounter with Jesus. As long as it doesn't mean transformation, as long as it doesn't mean sacrifice, as long as it means I don't have to look inwards and identify ugliness and a need for change, as long as it means it doesn't cramp my lifestyle and what I've got going on at the moment. But the problem is that if we place a limitation like this on our encounter with God, then we'll never experience joy in our fellowship with him 
We'll never experience true healing. When we read the scriptures and we, 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 we find the joy and the celebration of God's people, we'll never be able to taste of that. And all our worship of God will look like is this deaf encounter where we stick our fingers in our ears and we turn up the church for one hour on Sundays and we walk away with our fingers still in our ears and we fall into this dangerous cycle of thinking, okay, that encounter was worship. That's not what God desires of us. God desires if Father be opened. He desires our ears to be opened. Why? So we can hear his voice. And I think that's something we need to get into the discipline and practice of doing. Encountering Christ, taking our fingers out of our ears, and whether it's timidly or boldly, starting to stop and look inwards and hearing what God has to say. So I think one of the most tragic things for any Christian is to go through life experiencing encounter after encounter, but never experiencing the joy that he brings, to never experience the healing that he brings, never experiencing the restoration of the soul. And just looking inwards, seeing ugliness, and thinking this is just our lot in life. It's not your lot in life. God promises life through his gospel, joy, celebration, healing, restoration, and just rattle it on and on and on. All the promises of scripture it's not a promise given to God's people 2,000 years ago. We call God's word a living word because it's still alive today. His promises are still alive to his people today. But it begins by taking that courageous step to just stopping and looking inwards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, uh, we see much more than just eyewitness accounts. But we see in the lives of the people that encountered Jesus almost like a foreshadowing of what our encounter with Christ is meant to look like. That encounter is never to be divorced from worship, but the two are to go hand in hand. And Lord, for all people, not just a portion, but for all of humanity, when they do take that moment to stop and look inwards, all of us see inadequacies, flaws, emptiness, and ugliness. But Father, help us to tap into your promises through the gospel. That this isn't the lot in life that we're forever condemned to remain in. But that you offer a way out. You offer healing and restoration. And it begins by placing our faith and our trust in you. So I pray this for all of us, including myself. If we are hurting in different ways, that we would find healing and restoration 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.